Hi, one of my dearest friends. Man, we, it's been like, I think, 15 years now. Um, uh, we went to seminary together, and uh, his, I just saw his family, Mandy, and uh, his beautiful children are here to hang out with us. And so uh, I am just blessed to have him here. He has been uh, such a uh, pillar for me as I have seeking the Lord and walk with the Lord and, and trying to lead our local body. And uh, so oftentimes I will call him and we will connect and process what does it look like to, to lead the people of God and, and get prayer from him and good insight and good theology. And He's also, trying to be nice to me so I don't tell y'all the truth in a few minutes about Eric. <laughs> I'm going to get you, man. So you can say all you want. We're going to get you in a minute. Go ahead. <laughs> Finish, though, but I'm going to tell the truth. So I'm going <laughs> to so pray for us and pray that he tells the truth. <laughs> Thank you, Lord Jesus, for uh, my dear brother and our brother. Uh, thank you that um, in the kingdom we inherit uh, fathers, mothers, brothers, and sisters. And indeed, you've blessed me with Esau, and you've blessed this congregation. So Holy Spirit, exalt Christ uh, through your servant. We pray this wouldn't be about his pedigree. Uh, this would be about uh, uh, you using people uh, to accomplish your purposes, to exalt your name. And I pray that we would be uh, receptive, uh, hearers of the word and doers of the word. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you all um, for having me. Eric told you all that I've known him for about 15 years. Um, and in reality, um, we had no choice other than not whether or not we were going to be friends. We went to Gordon-Conwell in the early 2000s, and there were like five black people at the school. <laughs> so we just looked at each other and like, we got to survive this together. Uh, but more than that, more than that, um, Eric, for me, was one of those um, black people who grew up like I did, who knew what it was like to escape poverty, drugs, and violence, but not forget where you came from. We wouldn't have used the language at the time because it's not how we spoke, but Eric was woke. But most importantly, most importantly, um, Eric, he loved the Lord. And he was further along in his spiritual life. I'm going to talk about Jesus. I'm going to talk about Eric first. Is that all right? I'm going to, I got to process some stuff. I've been, trying to get, I've been trying to get in this pulpit for a decade, and he finally let me here. So I got to get this all out. Eric was further along in his walk with the Lord when I met him. He was, he was actually in seminary. This shocked me because I didn't come from like a strong Christian kind of formation like he did. He was discipling people in seminary. So if people in school to be pastors, he was in school himself, and he was teaching them how to love Jesus better. And he was always had some scheme for us as to how we could become better Christians, some newfound manifestation of holiness that he was doing that I wasn't doing that made me feel wicked. (laughs) There's this one time, you remember this when you were into memorizing the Bible. And so he comes to me, he goes, Esau, 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 you need to memorize the word. I said, okay. Then he's like, I memorized all of, was it Romans? He had memorized all of Romans now. We've been in seminary for like two days. He had all of Romans, and he was like heading into Corinthians or something. And he said, Esau, you got to do what you got to do. I said, all right. He said, start with Jude. Start with Jude. It's one chapter. You can bust it out. It'll be good. You get this Jude. So I get up early in the morning. I'm going to be like Eric. I'm going to memorize the Bible. And I think I made it like two or three days before I realized I wasn't about that memorization life. And this wasn't for me. But that was Eric. (laughs) He was passionate about his relationship with God. 
And he always, I've always actually wondered why, maybe we could talk about this too, why he actually never attempted to disciple me. And I've always thought, maybe Jude was a test that I failed, right? Maybe had I got the Jude, I would have gotten disciple. But now I realize, I think I realize, at least, at least how I rationalize it, um, what Eric really wanted in seminary was a friend. And I have tried over the last decade to be as good a friend of him as possible. And so it, it is a genuine honor, an honor to speak with you all today. And when Jenny called me, or actually she sent me an email, and she said, would you preach for Mac Ave? And I said, what will you pay me? No, <laughs> I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I said it would be an honor. By the way, I actually taught Jenny. I taught Jenny in high school. So I knew who was a 15-year-old when she was Jenny Doherty. And I went to school with Leon and Rebecca. So though you don't know me, in many ways, this feels like a homecoming. I've always wondered why you didn't invite me on staff. It's a different story, right? (laughs) Different story. Different story. But I've heard, I've heard that you all are in the middle of a sermon series about important passages in the Bible. And I had never heard, actually, I think they use the language of life verses, but I never actually heard of a life verse or a central verse when I came to seminary. It seemed like everybody had one but me. Um, But lo and behold, um, God did give me a verse years and years later that's been my constant companion over the last five to seven years. And I don't remember exactly um, how it happened or what, what, what I was doing, but I just remember reading this passage uh, and realizing that this passage was particularly true of me, and it would be true for the foreseeable future. And the verse in question is actually Jeremiah 12, 5, but I'm going to read Jeremiah 12, 1 to 5 to get a little context. Okay. I, can, I, can, I, can I left my Bible at home, so I've got to come over here. Is that okay? Okay. You are always righteous, Lord, when I bring a case before you, yet I will speak with you about justice. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do the faithless live at ease? You have planted them. They have taken root. They grow and bear fruit. Listen to what God says. Watch them tell the truth. You are always on their lips, but far from their hearts. I go to the next one. Yet you know me, Lord. You see me and test my, st- my thoughts about you. Drag them off like sheep to be butchered. Set them apart for the day of slaughter. How long will the land lie parched and the grass and every field be withered? Because those who live in it are wicked. The animals and birds have perished. Moreover, people are saying, he will not see what happens to us. That was Jeremiah's complaint. This is God's response. If you race with men on foot and they have worn you out, how can you compete with horses? If you stumble in a safe country, how will you manage in the thickets by the Jordan? I know Jeremiah is not where most people's life verses come. At least in line, unless it's Jeremiah 31, right? Today I would like to speak to you all on the topic. Sometimes your blessing is not right around the corner. Sometimes your breakthrough is not on the way. 
Before diving in the text, let me say a little bit about Jeremiah, the prophet and man of God. Is that all right? All right. What does it mean, man? What does it mean to refer to Jeremiah as a prophet or a man of God? I mean, if, we, if we're going to set aside Moses for a second, who's a special category, the first we hear of prophets in the Bible is actually during the time of Saul. And if any of you who've read uh, the, the book of Samuel, you, you hear this story uh, of Saul is walking and the Spirit of God rushes upon Saul and Saul begins to prophesy. He began to speak God's word. And when the people see the spirit of God fall upon Saul, they ask the question, is Saul among the prophets? So to call someone a prophet, to refer to Jeremiah as a prophet, means to refer to him as someone who speaks not his own words, but the words that God gives him. It's someone who is empowered and controlled by the spirit. Jeremiah's fundamental orientation then is not, during the, not towards the proclamation of himself, but towards the lifting up of the God who created him. We know that prophets could be involved in the affairs of the day, right? So if you think of Nathan, who comes before David when he's in sin, right? Who does God send to confront the politicians? The prophet. So a prophet was someone who had both a political role, confronting those in power, and a spiritual role, looking to the needs of the people. Isaiah could say, the prophet, woe to you who add house to house until there's no room left in the land for the people to dwell. So God sent Isaiah to say, your housing policy in Judah is all messed up. A prophet could also be someone who spoke to the spiritual needs of the people. Hosea could come and say, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Israel, I called my son. But the more I loved him, the more they went after false gods. A prophet can come to the people of God and say, you've lost your first love. You've forgotten the one who saved you. A prophet could be from the elite. Ezekiel was a priest, a part of the establishment. Amos was a dresser of sycamore trees, a man of the people from the streets. Why does this matter? And what does this have to say to us in our day in the text before us. Jeremiah is a part of a long tradition of people raised up by God in a moment of crisis. 400 years of prophets, one after another, pursuing Israel relentlessly. This means that God never leaves himself without a witness and that God has faithfully pursued Israel for hundreds of years. And Jeremiah is simply the next in line. And every one of us who is a Christian, who's come to the Lord, can look back over their life and see the ways in which God has been relentless in pursuit of us, just as he was relentless in his pursuit of Israel. But more importantly than that, I want you to not misunderstand uh, what I'm about to say. I'm thrilled that you all love Mac Avenue. And I am in awe, Eric tells me all of the time, of your faithfulness under difficult circumstances. But before you were a twinkle in your mother's eye, God loved Detroit. And God loved this neighborhood. God loved this neighborhood before the collapse of the auto industry and the devastation of the economy. God loved Detroit 
before the crack epidemic. God loved Detroit before the mortgage bubble burst and sending the housing market into a tailspin. God still loves his neighborhood in the midst of gentrification. And God loves the gentrifiers too. I know y'all don't, (laughs) but God loves them too, right? He loved it before this church was planted. And long after you have all returned to dust, if the Lord should tarry, he will go on loving this neighborhood. This is a tremendous burden off your back. Because sometimes you can feel as a minister or as a lay person who's living in a difficult circumstances that you are the hope of the city. That you are the hope of the neighborhood. But you are not. God is. You, like Jeremiah, have only to be faithful during the season appointed to you in the place you were appointed. You are all gloriously replaceable. (laughs) Jeremiah is called a prophet and a long line of prophets. You are a church and a long line of churches. You're not the first. You're special, but you're not. His very existence, though, Jeremiah's very existence testifies not to his faithfulness, but to God's own faithfulness. And we, too, in our ministries are caught up in the grand story in which Mac Ad is nothing but a chapter, a glorious chapter, but a chapter written by God for his glory. And this frees us up to play our own part with joyful faithfulness. You don't even have to succeed. You don't even have to succeed. Jeremiah failed. Right? But even his failure was a testimony to the glory of God. And if you fail, and you say, we did it the right way. We did it the right way. Somebody will say, there was a church in this neighborhood once that loved the Lord. And it will matter. But this also raises the bigger question then. Right? If we are not a part of God's story, or better yet, we're all a part of God's story. The only decision that we have to make is whether we'll be a hero or a villain. This is all his story. Every church in this neighborhood is a part of his story. Everybody who's on the corner is a part of God's story. And the only decision that we make and the only thing that you guys announce as you preach the gospel in your community is what part of the story you are you on. Is your salvation a manifestation of God's graciousness or is your judgment a manifestation of his righteousness? We like to, used to like to say this, neighbor, this, this phrase in my neighborhood that only God can judge me. I like to say to people, yeah, but he will. <laughs> and he will. So what was Jeremiah's part then to play in God's story? The best as we can tell, Jeremiah receives his call as a young boy, the age 16 to 18 years old. Imagine that. We think that you can't start serving Jesus until you're 25, but Jeremiah did it at 16. Jeremiah was the grandson of Manasseh and the son of Ammon. And to understand uh, Jeremiah and Josiah, we need to spend a little bit of time on on Josiah's family history, right? Think of it as kind of like 444 for Judah, 
He said, you said they wouldn't get it. <laughs> That's a Jay-Z reference. We'll move on. Manasseh, there you go. it's coming now, it's coming. Manasseh relied upon Assyria. Manasseh was the king, two kings above Josiah during the time of Jeremiah's reign. But Manasseh, his granddad, relied upon Assyria for safety. So he would send them money and tribute so they wouldn't come and blow the city up or the community up. But even though he relied upon them for safety, he also began to adopt the religious practices of the most powerful nation that he saw. So not only was it about tribute, he began to worship the gods of that land. And he led Israel from the worship of God to the worship of the idols of Assyria. And we won't get into the details of the gods, but they they basically controlled three different areas of life. Fertility, weather, and crops. Money, sex, and power. Why then does Manasseh lead Israel to worship the gods of money, sex, and power. Because it was the politics of survival. They were the dominant force in the community, and it's easier to go along than to resist. You see the direct application? Think of it as the opposite of Daniel. We look at Manasseh and his decision to go along with the gods that were more pow- in the more powerful nation, and we see this repeated on every corner and street that we live. We see those in power, and we live, and we want to live the way that they want to live. The materialism that the inner city communities are, are criticized for is nothing but a manifestation of the materialism of the wider culture. I remember when I was, um, I was a kid, I wanted Jordans, uh, but my family was broke. And so my mom knew that I loved Jays, and so she was at Walmart or Target or wherever one day, and she saw some Jordan Ash shoes that looked just like Jordan, right? And so she gave them to me, and I had to wear them the first day of school because my mom, it's school, school clothes, right? So I remember walking into school, and I don't think I got three steps in before, because, you know, black people can spot weakness. <laughs> it was like sharks in the water. And I remember they, were called, they called them Ashy Jordans. I remember this vividly. And I was so ashamed. And I was like, why? Because the drug dealers, right? They had Jordans. They were in power. And I thought if I had what they had, I could have the life that they had. I was worshiping the gods of the nation that was in power around me. They chased women. So I chased women. They spoke about them any kind of way. So I spoke about them any kind of way. Outcasts, Jay-Z, Pac, and Nas. Those were my Bibles. How was I going to learn how to live when there was no one else to teach me? So worship the gods of the land. So Manasseh and Ammon practiced the same politics of survival that we see on every street corner. We see those in power. We see what they have. We adopt their practices in, hope, in, in the hopes that we will get that lifestyle. The game is dirty, so they got dirty. So what do you do? And this, this is the question that Josiah faced. You guys have heard about Josiah, the good king, right? This is the question that Josiah faces when he comes to power, when he comes to start his reign. What do you do in the when you come into a community that is for generations practice a politics of survival? What do you do 
when you come to power in the community that for generations have worshipped false gods that do not love them. Is that relevant to Mac Avenue? Okay, it's not. I'll keep moving. Okay. So what did Josiah do? What did Josiah do? He starts a national cleanup program. He gets all of the people together and says, we're going to renew the covenant. He does street evangelism. A lot of people get saved. They raise their hand and say, we're going to do right. They have this symbolic removing of all of the high places all throughout the land. But, and maybe once again, never experienced this in MacAff, what happens when people make professions of faith, but they don't really mean it? When they say they want to change, but in reality, the habits that they've developed over generations are always calling them back to their old lives. Into Jeremiah. Jeremiah comes and says, the renewal cannot only be external. You can't just make a public profession and say that you're going to change and apologize to people and think that life is going to just go forward from there. He says the renewal has to be internal. This is the reason why the most famous passage in the book of Jeremiah speaks about the new covenant that he's going to write on their hearts. One day God's going to make a new covenant with Israel, not like the one that they broke, not the fake conversion stuff, but the real change of the heart. One day, Jeremiah's hope is that God's going to do something real for Israel. So this is Jeremiah's ministry, a call to real but not superficial transformation, deep conversion. Eric might say, use the word discipleship. Right, that's your catch. I gotta get I gotta discipleship. I gotta say that at least once or twice today. Right. <laughs> I gotta say discipleship and sovereignty so I can make sure that I, <laughs> I stay on y'all's good side. <laughs> I keep I also told him, like, us angle, because we only preach like 15 or 20 minutes, so I'm gonna try my best to kind of stretch to at least get to 30. I'm doing my best here. Okay. <laughs> Trying to stretch. But isn't this Mac Avenue though, right? Beyond, beyond, beyond the building programs and the literature programs, and the sports, there is this longing for lasting change. So what does it look like then for those of us who actually engage in this ministry? What does it cost to engage in a ministry where you're calling people to real and superficial, not superficial change? You understand this? So it's one thing to have a ministry where you're set up to when people just say, I love Jesus. And you can kind of move them from the category of hell to heaven. But that was not sufficient for Jeremiah. He wants to see people actually changed. And what does it cost him personally to engage in that ministry? And so finally, you thought I was going to actually talk about the Bible anymore. We come to the text itself of Jeremiah 12. A text written by a man called by God to lead his community, to urge his community to spiritual and political renewal. And we find Jeremiah, who's been engaged in this ministry for a long time, complaining. Have you guys ever complained before? Or all of your prayers say, thank you, Jesus. Things are great today. Let's keep it going. <laughs> Jeremiah 12, 1 to 5 is known as one of the confessions of Jeremiah. A moment where he stops speaking to the people and he's speaking to God. This is like a prayer. This, is, this, is, this isn't a sermon for, this isn't, this isn't something he said on the mountaintop. This is when him and God were having a moment and Jeremiah could be real. It is an intimate moment with Jeremiah 
and is Lord. And he begins by speaking about God's character. You're righteous. You're righteous. He has beef with God. Right? He's suffering, but he knows who he is talking to. Right? You can't do this work. You can't do this work in this community and never get discouraged. We always have to keep in mind God's character. He is on the right side of things, and he is, he is God. So even when you complain, you complain realizing you're going to lose the argument. Like, we got beef, and I know I'm going to complain for a bit, but I want you to know that I know, right, before he has to pull like what he did to Job. He said, you need got to pull a Job. You need got to come check me, right? <laughs> I know how this is going to end. Job seems to think he's going to win. Jeremiah has no hope. He's like, I know God. You're righteous. I, I, know, my, I know my role. We need to speak this through. Right? He said, when I bring my case, I'm going to present my case. He should, this is how you do yeah, it. He's humble. Like, I'm going to present my case before you, but I know you're going to win. But just hear me out because I feel like I got, I got a, good, a couple of good points. Right? <laughs> a couple of good points. You, you traded the whole world, but there's some, there's some policies that you've implemented locally that I got some questions about. Right? Right? He said, um, God, the wicked and the treacherous seem to prosper. Right? Like I've been here for a while, and it seems like the shady people and the evil people thrive. Have you seen this? The frustration that hard work doesn't actually seem to work. I don't live here, so I can say this. I drove into, um, I drove into uh, Detroit the other day, and I saw this huge sign with the pastor's picture on it. And it said, your healing and freedom. Like, they had 15 blessings on the side. This turn left here. <laughs> I was like, he can afford the billboard. I wonder if Mac Avenue got money for a billboard that big. <laughs> and, like, and you see, and you go, wait, wait a minute. Why do they have this big church preaching this false stuff? And we preaching the truth, and we, we can't, we struggling. Right? He continues. Listen to what he says. You plant them. And they take root. He said, we can't even get them out of the community. They won't move. They don't go to jail. <laughs> Nobody gets caught. They have been here forever. And the language that he uses for you plant them and they take root is actually a strange inversion on Psalm 1, which is the righteous are like, are like streams planted. By, you know, like, he's like, that's what the righteous are supposed to be the ones who are planted in the community. That's what you said in Psalm 1. He said, but in the actuality, you seem to have planted the wicked. Right? It was this pastor that seemed to speak so clearly to my neighborhood. I did not see the wicked punish the rebuke. This is the hard part about resisting the gods of the land. Could you see the people who are wicked and it seems to be working? He had Jordans, I didn't. Right? I'll never forget when I first um, came home from college. And I had receipts. I had grown up in the same neighborhood that they had grown up in. Um, but I, I went back to my same neighborhood that I grew up in, and we hung out together. And it was like my education was like a wall between me and the people who I knew and loved. 
and I was no longer acceptable to them precisely because I wasn't doing wickedness. Then Jeremiah goes for the heart and he comes for the religious people. You are always on their lips, but far from their hearts. He says, half these religious folks are fake. These other churches, it's Jeremiah, these other churches, these other prophets in the neighborhood don't actually love you. They use the language of God, but the things of God are far from their hearts. They say one thing in the streets and one thing in the pulpit and they go home and they live how they want to live. And everybody knows it, and it damages the reputation of God. But Jeremiah, and just imagine this. Imagine almost the, the robust arrogance, but this must be true. He said, he said, but look, but you know me. You know me. You know me. You know me. You have tested me. So Jeremiah says, you know that they are fake. And you know that I'm real. You know that this stuff matters to me and that I love my people. How can this be possible? I take this seriously. I minister faithfully. You know because you tried my heart. Just think of the love for God that you must have when you go before God and say, you know I'm a Christian. (laughs) You know I'm saved. I got this. And then Jeremiah because he's being honest, right? He says, slaughter them. Kill them, right? Now, you have to understand, that that may seem a little bit harsh. In chapter 11, they had actually tried to kill Jeremiah. So Jeremiah has just survived a plot on his life. He said, I'm out here ministering the community faithfully, and they're trying to kill me. It's not even safe for me to walk the streets. So you kill them. I know y'all are holy, and you never hope that God judge your enemies. Right? <laughs> I know that's never happened to you. Then you say, God, I don't want them to suffer. But then they suffer a little bit. <laughs> and then they convert. It'll be okay. Right? <laughs> I want them to get saved. I want them to suffer a little bit before they find Jesus so they know what I went through. Jeremiah's whole point is not simply that he wants revenge, but he wants the people removed in the community so that the things of God might flourish again. And sometimes we do. We don't want people to die, but we look around and we see the wickedness in our communities and we want the people practicing that wickedness to be judged so that the community could flourish. And he continues. Listen to Jeremiah tell the truth. How long must the land suffer? He says, so not only are the people suffering because of the wickedness, creation itself is suffering because of the wickedness of the people. Sin is destructive, not in, just in the spiritual lives of the community, but in the physical landscape of Judah. Have you guys seen this? The, the reality of wickedness and the impact it has on the topography of Detroit. Right? So he wants, he wants the wicked removed so that there can be a spiritual transformation, but also a transformation of the land itself so that Israel could be beautiful again. I've driven around this community. One of the things that Eric does when he brings people here, he drives them around the neighborhood. And, and he shows us kind of what's happened here. And when I speak of the wickedness of the community, understand this. I'm not just talking about the, like the, the corner boys. I'm talking about the, the public policy. Right? When I talk about the wickedness that leads to what's happening in this neighborhood, I'm not talking about individual low-level criminals. I'm talking about the public policy 
that brings blight upon communities and gives no hope. Jeremiah says, how long will the wicked stay in power so that the people are suffering? So he had lived among people in misery and longed for the God of Israel to act. Do something, God. So how does God respond? All right, my life first. Happy, happy passage, right? <laughs> how does God respond? God, God does not respond in the same way that he responds in chapter 11, if we had read it. When God reassures Jeremiah, I'm going to get the wicked. Don't worry about it. He did not tell Jeremiah that his breakthrough was on the way. He did not tell Jeremiah, hold on a little bit longer. Your blessing is right around the corner. He did not tell Jeremiah he was about to enter a new season. What did he say? What did he say to Jeremiah who pours out his heart about the difficulties of life and living in a difficult situation? He says that if you've raced with men and they have wearied you, like if you're tired now, what will you do with horses? In other words, if you think it's hard now, it's going to get worse. If you stumble in a safe land, since you live in Judah now, where you know the people and you know the neighborhood, what will you do in the thickets by the Jordan? The thickets by the Jordan was the area in and around the Jordan River where the wolves and the lions and the dangerous things dwell. You don't go out there unless, you, unless you're ready to get, have to deal with some stuff. But beyond that, in the same way that Israel had come into the land across the Jordan River, they would be exiled across the Jordan River. So he's saying, if you think it's hard now, wait until I throw y'all out of here and you're in Babylon. So here's the thing. Sometimes faithfulness to God does not make things easier. It makes them harder. There's a way of preaching the gospel as if Jesus is just going to fix all your problems, right? As if you have trouble in your marriage and all you need to do is come to Jesus and trust him and all your problems are going to go away. There's a way of speaking about the gospel as if you have difficulty with your children and all you got to do is bring them to church and all the problems are going to go away. There's a way of preaching the gospel in which you're struggling financially and all you got to do is come to Jesus and everything's going to be okay. That's the way of speaking about the gospel. You say, there's just a God-shaped hole inside of you. You're a little bored. You got money. You know what to do with it. Put a little Jesus in there. It'll fix it right up, right? The Jesus, the cure to your boredom and your feeling of insignificance. But sometimes coming to Jesus makes life harder because for the first time you see yourself as you truly are in the community for what it really is. For the first time, you actually begin to long for holiness. For most of your life, you're dissatisfied with sin. So now when you actually pursue holiness, things are going to get more difficult and not easier. Moving to Mac Ave then and doing ministry, this sacrifice isn't automatically going to make you more holy. It's going to actually reveal the sin that was always there. Things are going to get worse before they get better. All right? 
It's spiritual warfare. You are in the thickets of the Jordan. When I first discovered this verse, um, I thought that my life was about to change for the better. I was ending a very difficult pastoral stint in Japan, and I was about to start a PhD in Scotland. And I thought, I've, I've, I've made it. I've arrived. And God said to me, it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. And I found myself as like the only black person seemingly on the continent of Europe. <laughs> I was in Scotland. And I was around all of these academics who spoke about Jesus and the things of God in a way that was foreign to me. And I was studying with this guy named N.T. Wright. You may not have heard of him, but he's a, he's a famous Bible scholar. And I would give him chapter after chapter after chapter, and he would say, that's not good enough. That's not good enough. That's not good enough. And I thought I was going to fail, and I moved my whole family all the way across the world, and I got to, you know, you got, Facebook is, is, the, is the great revealer of truth. You got to post on Facebook, I flunked out of school, pray for me, right? <laughs> and I remember I would um, go on, on these runs through um, St. Andrews, and I would just preach the gospel to myself over and over again. This is not how your story ends. This is not how your story ends. Not because I actually believed it, because I need to be able to come back into my, into my house and lie to my wife and say everything's going to be okay. Right? I was knee-deep in the thickets. And as I reflected more on the passage, it reminded me of kind of like when I first met evangelicals. Um, I grew up, um, like I said, in an all-black neighborhood in, in, in Huntsville, Alabama that has its own issues and drama. And I thought that when I left poverty and came into the middle class, Things are going to be better. But it was more difficult. Money does not solve your problems. And I found myself around an evangelicalism. They didn't want me to be black. They wanted to suppress my culture and fit me into a mold. And I looked up and I said, am I the only person who thinks this is crazy? Then I met Eric. Anyway, (laughs) but we were in the thickets. Right? We were in the thickets. So what do, we, what do we do with this? When we come to God and we're struggling, I'm about done now. We come to God and we're struggling and, and he tells us things are going to get worse. How is that good news? How is that good news for us? First, we learn that our suffering is no surprise. Right? Suffering is not evidence that you have made a bad decision. It's not evidence you made a bad decision about your marriage your children, or your job, or your church. It is not the case you can say things are difficult here. I am suffering, therefore I need to move. Right? You are creating a testimony for somebody. Understand this. I could say, Jeremiah failed. The people didn't repent. They went into exile. He's complaining now in chapter 12, and things got way worse. But his faithfulness in the midst of that difficulty led to the New Covenant passage that stands at the center of the New Testament. That in the midst of this tremendous trauma, God could do something even greater. And now you can't even talk about Jesus without saying New Covenant. Furthermore, um, our suffering even when things are already difficult, reminds us that we are exiles. This place is not our home. 
Our hope is not that Mac Ave will be transformed into a utopia where every single person is going to follow Jesus. There's no more crime, no more violence. That is not what's going to happen. What's going to happen is Jesus is going to come back and judge the living and the dead. He's going to transform creation itself. And our suffering reminds us of that, that our hope is ultimately in heaven. People get mad at Christians because we, we, we look to, to the coming of all things being made and do. And all you guys think about is heaven and new creation. I go, well, then what's your hope? Nothing. Right. We believe that this isn't it. And that doesn't give us any excuse to uh, escape the world, but it gives us hope as we encounter the difficulties in it. Finally, finally, um, what do we do with this? We can see we can see what Jeremiah did not see. The suffering is in vain. Jeremiah just wrote Jeremiah 31 and died. He hoped. We live on the other side of the cross. Right? We know that God did eventually come and rescue his people in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, the one who loved us and gave himself for us. So it's okay for the Christian if things get worse because in Christ, they actually can't get any better than they already are. What can get, what, what's better than new creation? So yes, we suffer and we mourn and we weep. But we do not mourn as the world does. It's those without hope. So the question then for us is not whether or not we will suffer or whether or not our suffering will have an immediate end. This is all part of the human experience. Rich, poor, young, old, we will all eventually suffer. But what will it mean? What will it mean? Will it be a testimony to the glory of God in the midst of our suffering or just another human tragedy? Godspeed as you navigate the thickets. Amen.